this week on Dig Me Out. Just west, just west of Eden, from Chicago to Gethsemane. Just west, just west of Eden, this flower smell like tragedy. Just west, just west of Eden. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. We're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. So this episode came together in an unusual way. Brian Koppelman, who is the co-creator, showrunner, and executive producer of Billions on Showtime, happens to also have a podcast called The Moment, and he tweeted out that while he was staying at home, he was happy to join some other podcasts. So I tweeted that we would love to review a 90s album with him. And he said, I'd like to check out Michael McDermott's 1993 album, Gethsemane. And we said, sure. And then some time passed. We finally got our schedules working out. And unfortunately, Jay was not able to join us for this episode, which is a rarity. Probably hasn't happened in five or six years. But I was able to hop on Skype with both Brian and Michael to talk about not just Gethsemane, but the music industry in general, their experiences over the past 30 years. Make sure to stick around for the entire thing. There'll be links in the show notes for Brian's podcast, as well as Michael's music. Let's get to it. I want to welcome you both to the podcast. We're going to be talking about the album from 1993, Gethsemane. Did I say it correctly, Michael? You did. Okay. You did. Because I, I was reading the little bio on your website for this record and about how it confounded many a DJ back yeah, in the day. It did. So, and on this podcast, we have covered, you know, this is our 480-something episode. So, and we've done records from all around the world. And usually there is a name in a band member, you know, from one of the band members that I cannot pronounce. And usually it's Swedish or Norwegian that are the ones that mess me up the most when we get into that well, symphonic metal of yeah, the 1990s. It, 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 Gethsemane takes a, a minute to figure out uh, yeah. how to say. Even if you've heard a, a preacher tell the story, um, <laughs> it still <just> doesn't. <laughs> it was originally, it was called From Chicago to Gethsemane. Right. Dropped the, we dropped the first part. Yeah. So I should explain to everyone, uh, you know, what's going on here. Joining me because uh, Jay is swamped at work and couldn't make it for this episode. Joining me from uh, lockdown locations around the country, uh, we have Michael McDermott. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. And we have Brian Koppelman. Hello, Brian. Parts unknown. I don't know where you're at. Somewhere safe. I hope. I am safe somewhere near, but not too near, New York City. Excellent. So for folks out there who are, you know, like, what's going on here? You mo you're going to know Brian from the uh, show Billions on Showtime, co-creator, showrunner. He's gonna also screenwriter for two of my favorite movies, Ocean's 13 and Rounders. But before that, we're going to we, we're gonna set that aside for a minute. We've got a whole music executive career to talk about that perfectly syncs up with our 
modus operandi here on Dig Me Out, which is the 90s. So much to yep, discuss. Yeah. So much happening in the 1990s, which is why we've been doing this for 10 years, because there's just so much to, to discuss. So, of course, when Brian threw it out there that he wanted to talk about stuff on people's podcasts, they said, let's, let's talk about a 90s album. And you suggested this record. So here's what I want to know. How did you guys meet? I know that the, the relationship goes back like at least 30 years. What was the circumstance that led you two guys to, to hook it up back then? I was um, I was a young A&R person, which is artists and repertoire, the people responsible for going out and finding artists and then overseeing making of their albums. And I was working uh, for a record company owned by Irving Azoff, uh, who's legendary guy. I'm sure has come up before your podcast, I sure. imagine. And um, he, I was able to sign artists and um, a manager came to see me and gave me a couple of tapes, one of which um, was Michael's. Michael was a 20-year-old, this was 1989, and uh, Michael was a 20- or 21-year-old songwriter, and um, there were two songs on this demo tape, the, the lyrics of which spoke to me of a kind of depth and sophistication that I hadn't heard in a very long time, and there was a, I still remember neither song ended up making it on an album ever. One was called When the Rain Comes Down, and the other was called The Queen. And um, I flew to Chicago to see a few different artists. Michael was from Chicago. I went to see him um, play at the smaller venue at a big club and uh, was quite impressed by his songwriting and intensity. The next day he came uh, to my hotel with his acoustic guitar and played me how many songs did you play, Doug? I don't know. I would think in, it, probably 30, 40, maybe. And of those 30, let's say 30 songs that, that Michael played, at least 25 of them were like, fuck, this is a really good song, man. And uh, I, I knew there were going to be certain, and I even articulated it to Michael at the time, commercial challenges, but I felt like an artist like this who wrote songs like he did was worth trying to figure out how to sell into this, you know, that market, how to, and the truth is I wasn't great at being an A&R guy. I was great at the part of finding people whose music was really worthwhile. I was bad at the part, which is required, which is figuring out how to sell those artists internally to the rest of the people at the record company. And so I knew that I knew that part was going to be hard, but I felt like it, it was worth it. And we dove in and we made that first album together uh, I co-produced the record with Don Gaiman, one of the legendary great record producers. We had sort of a hit, an MTV hit with a song called The Wall I Must Climb. And then Gethsemane, uh, I left that label along with Michael. Um, I signed him again uh, I, to the next place I went. And, and we, you know, he wanted to make a record that would sound different. And, um, and I was willing to go with it. And that became uh, Gethsemane. Michael, you got a different take on? Yeah, on no, that was. I mean, if, in, for the uh, in the interest of dramatic effect, uh, Brian had left after our first record, and it did pretty good, I guess. Uh, Brian left the label, and it was kind of that typical um, story that you've probably heard a million times about the the artist at the label, and now his his uh, own his only uh, defender is gone. Right. And so I was kind of 
table and I had nowhere to go. And we had originally tried to make Gethsemane up in Seattle with Rick Parashar, who had just put out like 10. Like the first record came out, like I think it was the same week as like Nirvana's Nevermind, you know, which is a bad, it's, it'd be like releasing a movie the same week as Titanic, you know. And uh, so it was, you know, it was an Americana record. And there was like a minute where Americana or, you know, singer-songwriters were kind of a thing for a minute. And then it was just over. Grunge had taken over. And then we went to Seattle to make Gethsemane. And and then it was just, it lang languished at, at Giant. And then Brian came to Chicago, from my recollection, and saw this show that turned into kind of a, uh, a bit of mayhem, like the, we went on late and then played over time and they shut the power down and there was like a, a mini riot. And, uh, and Brian, you know, was going to uh, go work at EMI and he said, I got to figure out a way to get you over there. And then that's kind of what happened. And then instead of making kind of a grunge record, Brian said, let's not go crazy on this and let's get like Don Dixon, you know, to, to make the record. And then uh, that was kind of the beginning then of, of Gethsemane. And I'm assuming that Don Dixon gets involved because that's a name that's come up probably a dozen times based on the albums that we've talked about on this show. I know you're a huge R.E.M. fan, Brian. So does his connection to R.E.M. factor into that decision for him to come aboard? Sure. I mean, we made that album at that record, Reflection Recording Studio right. where they made Reckoning, you know, and um and in fact, the voice of Harold, the record that voice of Harold is, which is on the beast is based on where there's the writing about the, the sort of, uh, by the, the gospel group on the back of this album was in that studio. But Dixon had not just done that, you know, Dixon had made so many records that both of us love. Sure. Uh, he'd had the counting crows connection. He'd you know, he didn't make that record. He wrote one of those songs and worked with them on the <laughs> demos and, and like, um, maybe Guadalcanal Dyer. There were a bunch of records that Dixon had made that both of us thought were great. And we loved his solo albums. He was a solo yeah. singer and great songwriter, right, Michael? And, yeah, and, and it, so it just made sense to us in, in that way because he understood songs, but also he understood how to let a band find its own sound. And at this time, Michael had put together a band and had a sound in his head that we were all trying to find a way to grab. Yes. So when you talk about putting together a band, I think that's a fascinating aspect of the, the singer-songwriter world. Is that people that you know, like, coming up through your scene? Or are you literally, like, going, I, I really like the guy who's playing bass in that band. I'm going to approach him about joining my band. Like, how does that work for someone who's, like, out on their own? Yeah, well, you know, with with the, the help of Brian, we were able to run, do auditions and kind of an open call kind of thing. And I found... Uh, uh, two brothers that were kind of the, at the heart of it, the, the Petty brothers, and uh, and they were in from New York. And then the drummer, Michael Levesque, was from Boston. We did open auditions out there. And those guys were just great. And then Dixon played bass on Gethsemane. Um, so it was it was kind of the, kind of a not an entire band, a fully fleshed out sound, but uh, touring on the first record, I toured with the Petties, and we had kind of the three of us kind of kind of you know had a, had a um, it developed. A, a real camaraderie and i wanted them involved for sure well, just as a point of didn't one of the petties go on to be like the band leader for enrique iglesias or something yeah, enrique and tears for fears he's done he's done well and then and then dan he um he ended up writing i think the jingle for uh doc mcstuffins so oh, well. really yeah. amazing yeah. 
Yeah. So the, the Petties have done well for themselves. Yes. They're very talented guys. Very, very talented. talented. That's, uh, that's our second Doc McStuffins reference on this podcast because uh, Kay Hanley from Letters to Cleo has also been on, and she's, I believe, involved with Doc McStuffins. So, uh, oh, that's think, awesome. Well, aren't they from Boston? Too? Yes. They probably, maybe they wrote it with Dan, honestly, because I think he knew those guys, Dan Petty. Yeah. Oh, it's funny. Well, I'm friendly, very friendly with Chris Nee, who created the show. She's been on my podcast, so it's a, a whole Doc McStuffins love. And I've spent here. thousands of dollars on Doc McStuffins stuff. <laughs> oh, 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 it's a whole circle. <laughs> well, I, I I like the fact that you know tangent here. There have been a number of artists from the '90s who have gone on to make kids' cartoon music. Uh, if you remember the band Self. Uh, Matt Mahaffey, he does um, Henry, Henry Hungle Monster, and oh, yeah. Lisa Loeb has done a bunch of children's records, and the guys from, I think, President's United States of America have done kids' stuff. Oh, so, that's, that's funny. Uh, one of these days, we're just going to do a whole kids' episode, probably, of, of 90s relevant uh, music. But I, w- I wanted to talk about the record, because is this a concept record in the idea of, are there are there aspects of this record that tie together from song to song? Because when I listen to it, over and over again, it feels like there is a cohesiveness to this that isn't present on a lot of singer-songwriter records where it's just a collection of, you know, tunes. There feel, this has a real sense of connection, both musically and lyrically. Can you get a little bit of, of what was going on in the writing process? Yeah, I think thematically it was kind of based around the idea of, like, surrender. I think I was at odds with the, the way my uh, upbringing kind of faith had uh, I couldn't square it with the way I was behaving and, uh, and I think on some level there was a total disconnect and it was uh, and I think that was at the heart of it there was a lot of uh, you know with the Eden and uh, and surrender and and the idler and you know there's a lot of kind of loose religious imagery within that and uh, I think that was just the way that was just my vernacular it was the way I spoke and thought it was just because because I was brought up so steeped in it and and the and the fact that I was um, kind of there was a there was a crack in that foundation and I and I kind of think that was you know if I had I I can't remember at the time but I think if I had to guess it would be that uh, it was it was that that it was uh, I was kind of at odds with myself. Well, yeah, trying to find. I mean, I, I'd say having work you know work closely with you on these songs, hearing yeah. them and talking about them and. The, this idea of trying to hold on to some kind of faith in a world that every day is trying to make you faithless, uh, showing you the evidence of that maybe it's fair to be faithless was happening for you yeah. too. I mean, at the time you were, you know, if you even think about, you know, and then, and then if, if, if the ultimate faith is being questioned, what can you be faithful to? And so songs like moonlit prayer and, mm-hmm. um, nights like these and the idler and are, in which to put faith, finding somewhere to put your heart when uh, the world can try to turn you heartless. And and for me, there's a beauty in 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 that search going on throughout the record. Beautifully put. Interesting. Yeah, Brian. So with the the, we, I mean, I don't know if you how we're going to do it, but if you wanted to go, there was a song, The Idlers, that was mentioned. That song originally, you know, kind of Brian and I's routine would be. I'd have a batch of songs and I'd send it to him and then he'd critique it. And then we wouldn't talk for a couple of weeks. Cause I was, you know, I was, <laughs> I was very, everything he didn't love. And, uh, and then I realized he was always right. And it drove me literally insane. 
and uh, and the idler was it was like a funk song, and uh, and Brian had you know when he called to give me his notes or whatever he said yeah that uh, that idler song it's uh, it that's terrible, uh, but uh, but you know, and I couldn't you know I was just I was already mad and then uh, he said but you know I think the I think the lyrics are really good you know just take that lyric sheet and sit down at a piano and get rid of that fucking funky white boy guitar. And see what happens, and uh, and that's what I did, and you know that's like maybe my most beloved song, if there is such a thing, but that people still to this day. Wait, but also, dog, I think that, that chorus came from another song too. Did I? <laughs> maybe. Yeah, dude. I think that what happened was you then sat down at the piano with those and wrote those verses, and then that turn and you turn thing was in another song of yours. Uh, maybe, yeah, could be. And uh, and because I, I remember being like, "Hey, do you think that that song goes with those words?" And then that's when you, you, that, then that you like, fuck, it does. <laughs> that melody of that other song. Yeah, you'll find there's a tape somewhere of that chorus in another song. Rain said, "Forget it now. It doesn't matter anyhow. I'm just a cat out on the." Melodrama suits you, girl I just don't think you've got the edge The other looked twice And he rolled his dice Said, you know what would be nice If you two would shut up for a while The prophet said, that's fine with me Rain, she nodded, she seemed to agree And the Adler began to smile Just like a child The prophet said You can turn and you turn Trying to find yourself You can turn and you turn Till there's no one else You can turn and you turn And a baptism of flame And the wind swept like revelations with the idler, the prophet, and the girl called. Yeah, I wish people could see like the Brian Koppelman I knew, the fact that he's achieved such a claim and such an amazing artist now. He always was. Brian was always kind of the star and he was the straw that stirred the drink kind of. And uh, we were just at the blast, you know, like he was the kind of control. Like, so it's, it makes perfect sense to me that, that this has all happened for him because it always was there. And it was just, you know, he had that, that light that everybody was really drawn to. And, and um, all the best ideas were always his, I hate to say. Yeah. Ah, come on now. Come on. That's not, that's not too many of that, man. You were a, uh, you know, Michael, uh, there's no one whose work I respect more than yours. That's why this album was the first oh. thing I said when, when oh. I was asked about it, because it, it, I, I almost think you were too good for the moment you were in. And in that, look, I love Nirvana and Pearl Jam and all that music means a lot to me. And, and I think that, um, life stuff got in the way too. Like, I don't think, you know, we were all, you know, I'm not sure, you know, I wanted to by by this point, I was already starting to get frustrated with being sort of like not a, not someone doing this stuff. And I think you were at a point in your life where, I mean, you've talked about it a lot, you were getting pretty fucked up. And so like, the, I think 
stuff didn't quite come together in the way it could have. But I can go back to this album and hear songs that, man, I just think still feel like more people should have heard them because I hear something Moonlit Prayer and you know, I put it on this morning. Uh, and this album's painful for me to listen to because I, I wanted it to be out there in the world. And I, I wanted more people to understand it. And, you know, great things came out of it. It's like Stephen King's one of his favorite albums ever made. And he put right. it in books and stuff. Uh, but I hear those, these songs, leave it up to the angels, moonlit, and they sound like they're as relevant today. Lantern man is an all time classic. And, um, and, and this, I, I've always felt that, that these records, you know, yesterday, somebody on the internet who I didn't know tweeted to the two of us about how he made a pilgrimage to your, house that you titled your first album 620 with surf after and um people when they're exposed to your music and really hear what you're singing about and and give themselves the time to absorb the melodies they always end up with this deep attachment to what you do and 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 what you sing about and about the way you see the world and it gives people tremendous hope i see that in these stage it shows you do where so many people come and they know these songs by heart and they rank them and they list them and you know, you have this group of fanatical fans and so many of them were plugged in right from here, right from, from this record forward. Right, right. absolutely. want to say that why that probably is is because of the way you guys produce this. This doesn't have a... This is a very timeless sound to it in the way that a lot of records, especially in the early 90s, still so- kind of sounded production-wise like late 80s records where there'd be too much little too much reverb on the drums and yeah. you would just guitar tones were a little off by the end of the decade and this record has more of like a classic Springsteen uh you know sound to it than say a you know a a mid 90s sort of singer-songwriter you mentioned the jangly guitar like that's one of the biggest pet peeves I have is that you can hear when a band backing up a singer-songwriter doesn't really get to bring their stuff because the singer songwriter is not changing the way that they're playing their guitar to maximize the rest of the band. So that jangly guitar just like takes over everything. And, and here it sounds like it really sounds like a band in ways that I was not expecting with regards to the, you know, there's some really cool like slide stuff going on and there's some really beautiful organ and, and keys that are that are happening all over this record and you mentioned the idler like that to me when i heard that i was like this is like thunder road like that's the level of of craftsmanship that's going into that song and it really i i didn't know you were from chicago originally so when i first heard the record i'm like this sounds like a jersey record like i'm hearing it's like jersey's filtered through a little u2 in in some respects like there are elements of of springsteen and and even like dare i say Bon Jovi in the acoustic sense, not the big brash, you know, bad medicine, but like the solo John Bon Jovi stuff that kind of reminded me of the, just the tenor of your voice. Yeah. I was listening to it today and I was struck by how great it sounded. Yeah. Uh, how well it was mixed and, and, um, but yeah, I also felt like, God, I was really young. Like I could hear it in my voice and like, I wasn't, I wasn't really even sure to, how to sing that well then. And I was kind of fake. I mean, you know, that's what it struck me is like, I was really trying to play above the rim and I couldn't jump, you know, like I was, I was, uh, it was, it was weird. It was a weird uh, experience this morning. Well, you know, the, the Springsteen thing was, I think was a really difficult thing for Michael back then because his voice does sound a little bit like Bruce's and Bono was the other 
yeah. you know, back, I'll say back then his biggest, your biggest three influences back then. I mean, we can add John Prine in as a fourth, but yeah. like you were, your biggest influences then were Bruce, you two, Dylan and Prine, right? Those were the four people that you cared about the most and a local singer songwriter named Mike Jordan. Those were the guys you cared about the most. And, yeah. uh, and so that stuff still came out in, in a way. And we couldn't, when I talk about the commercial that I, I knew to be a, a difficulty with finding the commercial success, it was because nobody who'd sounded like Bruce other than like the one John Eddie song had ever really found a way to break through Bon Jovi because he put it in a, a heavy metal context. And that was different. And we could never quite strike that, you know, now Michael has this real following and he tours the world, but, but as a really as a solo artist, I mean, you play with a band, but like as a, a, a folkier version of, of, who he was, but but this was a rock album, which which did then put it squarely in that place of like, well, wait, is this guy uh, Brucey? Is it is there you know where's the is there a U two element? You're exactly right. That that is the stuff that 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 exists in there, and the mix was done by Steve Thompson and Michael Barbiero, who had mixed Appetite for Destruction. They were really great at they were great at mixing records. They were. Um, uh, Don Dixon was like a member of the family to us. Thompson and Barbiera were like these L.A. I mean, they were the New York and L.A. They, I, I couldn't relate to them. Nice guys, but I couldn't relate to them at all. <laughs> but man, they were good at what they they yes. they were so good at what they did. Yeah. So you well, and I was I was young, and then you know I got all the Bruce stuff. Now it doesn't bother me, but uh, you know when I was, when you're young, like and I was I was you know I wanted to be in a grunge band, you know, and and uh, and it's funny you say Prime because you know in, uh, in Moonlit Prayer, Detroit Junior used to play at Earl's where Prime was discovered, Earl of Old Town, and I would go there. Yes. To- open mics and at Earl's in Earl Pianchi was the name of the owner. And you know, Earl at the bottom of the hamper is where all Earl's money stashed. That was about Earl Pianchi. You know? So, um, but uh, yeah, so I wanted to be like, I wanted to rock, you know, and, and the first record was, you know, I, and I toured solo, but I, you know, I was a kid and I had a lot of that youthful energy and wanted to be in a rock band really. And, you know, I don't know if it was, it served me as well as, as if, if I would have just done what I was good at. So why didn't you pursue the the band sort of format? Was it just a matter of not finding the right people, or did you just? I know yet. Then you have to share, you know, uh, in terms of somebody might say, "Well, I want to change something," or "I have an idea." Was it was that sort of a, a concept yeah, maybe, that you didn't want to work with? <laughs> maybe yeah. I don't play with well with others. I don't think and. Uh... Uh, but yeah, I mean, I did pursue the band thing, but it was, you know, it always, I always wanted to do it like the way Bruce would have done it, you know, where it was, you know, I wrote the songs and, but they brought what they brought. And, uh, I think the Petties did do that, you know. And I, I, I noticed when I was listening to the new song that you have out now, which is going to, the record's coming out in June called What in the World, I did notice an evolution in your voice and a, I don't want to say, you know, it's been 30 or 27 years since that record came out. But some of that's just going to be natural, right? I mean, your your right. voice is just going to change over time. You're going to sing more melodies. You're going to, you know, it's just going to expand. But I thought what was interesting is that that song, that's the uh, the title track for the record that's coming out, it doesn't sound like someone who's been doing it for 27 years. It sounds like someone's got a lot of fire still. And then where yeah. a lot of people think, oh, well, if you've been doing this for 30 years... You're going to be pretty mellowed out by the by that point. 
But I have the energy of a six-year-old because really it's six years I've been clean and sober. So it really was like a new lease on life. So I, I feel like I'm starting over again in a lot of ways. So were there artists that, you know, you mentioned about trying to find your voice when you were younger. Were there, I, I, I don't like to ask like what your influences were, but were there people that you heard and you said, oh, I want to do that, like singing? Because to me, singing is the, is the most difficult instrument to actually realize that you want to do it because it doesn't involve learning. You know, you, you pick up a guitar, you can sort of fiddle around a little bit. You can bang on some drums. You can sort of work it out a little bit. But singing is very different in terms of you don't quite hear what you're singing because you're, what you're hearing in your head is a little bit different than what you actually sound like. So when did you sort of start developing that aspect of, I want to do this, and and these are the people that are, interesting me into doing that yeah well i mean dylan kind of gave me the license to be like it doesn't really matter what you sing like you know and that was always i didn't really care and i didn't try but when you go out there in front of people and you sing on a nightly basis i started thinking i should get better at this because you know i was blowing my voice out all the time and i and i didn't like the way i sounded i still have trouble with and i'm not terribly comfortable with the way i sound but uh it's just it's at some point right when you know probably around the time of uh, putting out the first record and touring that first record, I thought I should really get better because I didn't really care what I sounded like. It didn't. It didn't interest me. It, what was most important was writing the songs, and uh, so it didn't matter what kind of vehicle you put it in. You know, it was just getting it, getting it, uh, getting the good songs was really the only only interest I had. Is it a? So I, you mentioned about playing like really kind of raucous shows. Uh, prior to this record and, and what I'm assuming was something that's common with a lot of musicians is that the live show is a little bit more hyped up and the songs are a little yeah. bit more, have a little more energy. Is that hard, you know, both for Brian as you as a producer and then Michael as a performer, is that hard to capture in the studio where you have to find the balance between the performance and then actually presenting the song in a, in a recorded way that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we even did the vocals for Gethsemane with monitors, so I didn't have headphones, so it would feel like maybe that will help. We were trying anything to make it sound like it did, you know, in a show. But, you know, like no one's ever been able to really capture that. I mean, very few artists are able to be like, wow, the record is as good as it is live. You know, it's so you hear that so rarely. And Brian, I don't know how your experiences were with other records, but it seems like it's near, near impossible. It's a different, I mean, they're different things. You know, you hear the stories about Bruce describing how he found a way to do it. Um, yeah, the, the, the thing that happens in those live shows, I think, Michael, is your self-consciousness would disappear and you could just connect with this audience. You know, the sense of mission and purpose really comes through you as you're trying to reach these people. And, and it is true, you know, my, I mean, Michael's always been like, how many nights you sell out at, at, at those like as many as you put on basically yeah. right? You, yeah. city wineries so like right from the beginning michael was in chicago he would sell these places out and you know now it happens to him in places around the world but at the time and so it's a, uh when people would come they would also know all the words even from the beginning if only there were five people at the show four of them would know all the words because his music just got them in some way. And, you know, there were guys coming with tattoos of like McDermott lyrics from the beginning, even yeah. though we'd be like, well, we sold nine albums. How do, 
how do three of these people have neck tattoos of some song of Michael's? It doesn't make any sense. Um, but that kind of thing would just inspire him to, um, I great heights when, when it was, you know, one on one when they were when it was like with an audience in, yeah. in that, that way. So one of the things we talk about on the podcast is how the format of releasing music changed in the nineties. It's really the only decade that's dominated by CDs. You have yes, the, and so this is a, a little over an hour record. Whereas if this had been released, say maybe three years earlier, four years earlier, probably would have been a vinyl release before a CD release, which means it, it would have had a, maybe a different track length. And I'm yeah. curious about what those discussions were like, because I know like we have encountered in doing this podcast so many records where we were like, if it had just ended at song 10, this would be yeah. an incredible record. But then there's four extra songs because I felt like, well, we have 78 minutes of CD. We have uh, to fill it up. So I, I mean, we really go that deep on... We would talk a lot about sequencing, like sequencing was very important then in a way that I think it's less important now. Right. Every album I worked on, every album I worked on, it was like a lot of time and effort went into what's the story we're telling through the sequence of the record and how, even on CDs, you would think about, well, okay, it's not side one and side two, but how to, what is the version of this story that we're, that we're telling? Um, you know, I came into the record business at the tail end of the vinyl days, like, I never really worked on an album that was because the first records that I worked on came out the summer of 88 to 89 and they were already CD releases, vinyl in Europe, CDs in America. And there was something sad about that to me because I grew up as a vinyl fanatic. You mm -hmm. know? Now I don't care. Actually, I don't I'm not someone who cares about vinyl now, but I mean, that's what I thought an album was something you could study and, and look at the words. And I'd say that's the thing, like, you know, Michael and I spent so much time thinking about how to present the lyrics and how to present the booklet and all this stuff that you would just never give even a moment's um, thought to now at all in any way, you know? Right. It does seem like there are, there are definitely people who are very vinyl oriented <laughs> and that, that that's like something that's very particular to a certain segment of music listeners. And I, I think maybe cause I'm a few, just a few years younger than you. I don't have that same attachment in terms of, it's got to be on vinyl or it's not real or there's some sort of something wrong with a CD presentation in terms of the sound quality or something like that. But it's often come up just because that decade was so dominated by CD. And then now the big business or was before everything happened was reissuing everything on vinyl and and getting that like second life to a lot of records that didn't. You know, have a vinyl. I don't release. really see that. Hey, Michael, do you buy? Do you go back and buy any vinyl? I don't really do it. No, I don't. No, but but people in Europe still to this day at shows, you know, they're always asking about vinyl. But it's hard to travel with for me, and uh, so I, I do have some vinyl, but it's kind of more of a pain in the ass, really, than than anything. And now it's getting to people who don't even want uh, the CDs. You know, it's just like, do you have a download card? Do you, can you, can I just buy it with an uh, those uh, those codes? They want to just. That's the next thing that's right. happening. So when this record comes out, are you getting it to mainstream radio, or do you start like with college radio? And well, this is this gets into yeah. We tried all of it. I mean, the the truth is, I blame myself for a bunch of this stuff, which is, I mean, I, 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 there's a lot of blame to go around. But 
we didn't really have a clean, obvious single on the record. And that really set up for radio, like nights like these, um, I mean, nights like this is like, um, there are catchy songs, leave it up to the angels, but then some of them, the production, it was like caught between those formats is really the truth. Mm -hmm. And idler, it was caught between a bunch of formats. The stuff was like, is it rock radio? But these lyrics are not really just strict rock radio lyrics. And then what is rock, you know, rock radio was playing older stuff or they were playing grunge. And then alternative stations, some would play Michael, uh, like, but then some would say, well, but it's really more traditional. And so as an A&R person, my job was probably to make sure that we had a clean single in a way that we could get out or a record that sounded like that. That was the intention of having Thompson Barbiero mix the record. But, um, you, you know, if I compare it, uh, to like when, when, I mean, we're friends with Jacob Dylan, we were friends with him then. And if I think about a couple of years later, like, when if I think about Jacob's demos and Michael's, there was a lot of similarity, but then when they went to make Jacob's record, they didn't put it out until he wrote one headlight. And then they made sure that the production on one headlight was like what the radio sounded like right then. I was terrible. I didn't ever care about that. And so as a result, I signed a lot of artists who became big afterwards, like, or who got to make the record they really wanted to make, but it wasn't really what exactly what the audience wanted at that time. Sure. And Part of that is because my sympathy was just totally with the artist as an yeah. A&R person. And I just wanted to serve their creative impulses. But the better person in my job would find a way to um, sort of massage their creative impulse into something that was more commercial. And that just didn't interest me. And it made me, I think, less good. And then also, you know, some blame has to go to cocaine. Uh, not on my side, on, on Michael's side of the equation. Cocaine's a hell of a drug. Um, so yeah, I, I was listening when I was listening this morning. I thought I, I had to stop and go. Wait, what was the single? Because yeah, it didn't. There nothing stood out to me. I was like, wait, what went to radio? You know, and uh, it was. I think you know. I think it was need some surrender. I think I'm not even sure. You know, that seemed well, like the single. I, to I me. remember actually. I know. I know. Just West of Eden went to alternative radio first. Right, right, because XRT played that. I know, but uh, and, and then didn't we I think we made a video for that with like oh, right, John right. Guys yep. for yep. Just West of Eden at at that club in Chicago. Yes, right. I forgot about. That. So Just West of Eden went to alternative radio and it got some some play, but then that really wasn't like typical of like the rest of the record or what Michael right. did, and so I think from a just a business standpoint, um, it was an odd time and the the the. the you know, I think that was the period of time, Michael, where maybe you weren't doing your best work on the road because you were sort of yeah. the show was just one part of the night in a way. And yeah. I think I wasn't able to translate all this in the best way to tell the story because that's the other part of the A&R guy's job is like telling the story of the artist. Part of it was I was so – I would get so angry that people didn't understand that Michael's songs were so important that it would drive me crazy and I couldn't find a way to – it took me a long time to figure out how to communicate that stuff and and um and i think that happened over and over you know we made one more record together after this uh, which is also i think an outstanding album just called michael mcdermott that joe hardy produced the late joe hardy's genius and one of my best friends and um it 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 too and, and that album has single after single and it didn't matter because somehow the story just wasn't getting told the right way of who um mike was like and i would say if you're interested in this record go find the Michael McDermott record because 
literally every song on that thing could have been on the radio in some way. And um, just somehow the time had moved briefly past. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you think the culture and, and especially like radio being, you know, very much on the newest artist sort of looks at it and go, well, this is another Michael McDermott record. And you kind of get your shot to make an impression with them. And because the first record, or not the first record, but the because the previous record didn't have that standout single, like you have to really push it hard on that next record, or else they're just going to be like, no. It seems like if you don't nail it with, especially in the '90s, by the time Nirvana was gone, you had to hit on that first single, get it on the radio, and then maybe you would get to another single, and maybe get to another record. But there's so many. You know, so many bushes, so many uh, bands that uh, candle boxes and what have you that had that one or two hits. And then they just, you know, they didn't do anything after that. And it seemed like that sort of bit everybody in terms of getting radio to add to the playlists. You know, I don't know the answer. I understand your question. I don't know. It's um, part of this. Part of it remains mysterious, right, of why certain things connect at certain times and why certain things have a life later. Like, to me, the fact that 20 years later, suddenly Michael found out that all over Europe, people were buying the first record and the second record, listening to them, memorizing them, and that he started going over to Europe when, Michael, 10 years ago about when, when this yeah. started? Where? Yeah, 2008 or nine. And then Michael realized he had a real following there where he can just go over there when, you know, when, when the world's back together and string 30 dates together and they sell out and, you know, club dates, but they sell out. And these records do find a home. It just took a longer time. And you had someone willing to sit down with an album and really listen to what this person is singing about. And if you do, if you do that, you will find that this is one of the great artists walking around. I mean, it's all been written about now, you know, enough people now there, you know, whenever someone writes about Michael now, they write about him as though he's one of these revered songwriters and, and as well he should be. But in, in his time, in the time that he was a young man, which is when this usually happens, um, it, it, it just, because it wasn't that hip or it wasn't that cool or wasn't sounding exactly like the guitars were supposed to sound then, it, it just didn't demand people to, to, to write about it. And again, I think a lot of that falls to me and the record company for not knowing how to tell the story in a way that would have gotten them there. I... You know, I signed David Gray the next year and um, we sold no albums. And, you know, two years later, David Gray sold five million records. So it, I, that that same kind of thing repeated itself a few a few times where uh, I just wanted the music to sort of stand for itself. And I felt it was worthy of it. But um, I think we could have found a way to, to tell the story better. So why isn't this streaming? Or at least yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. And I don't, I don't think the the self titled is either. No, the first three aren't. I don't know, Brian. Brian, is that your fault? Michael, <laughs> no, I, I have no. I mean, no, uh, no. I was going to ask you that, dude. Dog, I, why is six twenty nine certain West Coast so, not online? So I had a guy approach like Giant or you know some you know whatever it was Reprise or Warner or whatever and asked you know, about the rights to that. And they said, oh, you're interested? Okay. And he said, well, they said, we'll get back to you. And then they came back to him and said, 
yes, we'd be be happy to sell you the rights. And they they said for like one hundred and forty two thousand dollars. It was like, wait, what? Oh, that's insane. I know that's insane. Like we were hoping to sell like five a, a show, you know. So we just were like, oh, forget it, you know. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to resolve this problem at some point. Uh, <laughs> I, I will try to. <laughs> so you know, yeah, just up on Spotify or whatever would be great to have them accessible. Those records should be on Spotify. They really they really should. Yes. Yeah, because um, these are these are records. You know, we, we you know we're '90s podcast, but so many of the records that we talk about, people have never heard before. So it's new music to them. And so like you were saying about him having a new following in the UK, there are opportunities for artists all over to have their music discovered because it's not streaming. It's, there's like a giant hole for a lots of 90s artists especially that their stuff is just not up on streaming services. So I'm always happy when things pop up every once in a while. You're like, oh, they finally made it. Like it's a victory because now people are finally going to discover that band. You know, the Katie Lang song Anchorage isn't on any streaming service. I couldn't believe it. I was like, wait, really? No, it's not Katie Lang, Michael. It's uh, Michelle Shock. Oh, I'm sorry, Michelle Shock. Yes. That yeah. album. Yeah, I looked for that album yesterday, actually. It's so weird you just said that. Because I was playing, um, well, you know, she they took her off because she said some things that oh, were really oh. ill-advised and bad. Yeah. Not Katie Lang. Katie Lang is perfect. Right. Um, <laughs> but Michelle said some objectionable things. But I was playing one of her songs the other day, Memories of East Texas on my guitar. Yeah. I want to hear the original version of it, and I couldn't find it online. You have to go to YouTube. We, I think it was two days ago. We Heather said, "Hey Google, play Anchorage," and it was, you know, no. Yeah, you can't find it. You can only YouTube it. We're gonna wrap up right here. I just wanted to say I, I'm really happy that you brought this record to the podcast because I think it's something that people should check out. When it makes it on the streaming services, they should definitely check it out. They can go to Michael's website, which is michael-mcdermott.com, and they can get it there. It's one of those timeless records from the 90s that doesn't sound stamped. It sounds like it could it could have been an 80s, a 70s, 2000s record. It's got a really unique in, you know, sound that's individual to itself. A lot of cool songs. I think needs to need some surrender should have been a single. That should have been a that should have been a hit at some point in the 90s, but you know, timing is everything. When is the um when's the new season of, Bill, of Billions hit? Brian the new seasons of Billions starts May 3rd. Uh, as there is in every season, there will be a Michael McDermott song in this season of Billions. <laughs> Excellent. That's one of, that, the music on the show is great. That's uh, Thank you. Thanks so much. And, of course, you have your podcast, The Moment, which um, I was just listening to the Bill Simmons episode today, actually. So people can go to all the podcast locations. Podbean is where you'll find it, as well as iTunes, Google Play, uh, Stitcher, yeah, all those places. It's called The Moment. The moment with Brian Kaufman. Yeah, get in there. Hey, man, thanks for having us. This was awesome. Uh, anytime I get to talk about the greatness that is Michael McDermott, the songwriter and singer, it's a great pleasure to do it. So thanks for inviting us on. Absolutely. Thank you, bro. Thank thanks, you. Tim. Thank you both, guys. Have a great day. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Once again, thanks to Michael McDermott and Brian Koppelman for stopping by. Make sure to visit their guest pages at digmeoutpodcast.com for all the links mentioned. You can also sign up for the box there. That's our weekly newsletter. 
where you can stay up to date on 80s and 90s new releases featuring our one-minute reviews, both print and audio, and we've added books and movies relevant to 80s and 90s music. Of course, you can support us at digmeoutunion.com or dmounion.com. That's our Patreon. And if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at Apple Podcasts. For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Dig Me Out.